everybody, I'm Sheldon for an alcoholic. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to feel the vibe in the room. I, uh, I'm lucky that I get to go to uh, several conferences a year, and I always am amazed at how much energy there is in a room. The people that get up in the morning and go to a conference and that participate in these kind of events are the real doers in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, this is great. This is the first ever uh, Circle City Roundup. Uh, it's Usually they wait a few years before they invite me, make sure the thing's solid. So I'm going I'm to try my hardest not to break it with it being as new as it is. I'll tell you a little bit about me. I was uh, uh, born in the north of England uh, in a small city called Leeds, about 200 miles straight north of, of London. I, uh, I've lost my accent from uh, being here since I was 16 years old. My brother tells me it's because I have no discerning personality of my own. I like the word chameleon better. It's, I have more of a ring to it, right? But I, I, was, I was born in, in the north of England. I was born to average folks. My parents are, are not alcoholics at all. If, uh, if being born into an alcoholic home somehow qualifies you more to be an Alcoholics Anonymous, I fail on that count. My, uh, my parents are not alcoholics. I, uh, my dad did leave, though. When I was two years old, my, my parents got divorced, and uh, it was... It was very difficult childhood. I, I didn't like my childhood at all. In fact, if, when I first got here, if you'd have asked me why I drank, I would have told you that it was because of my childhood. It was because Daddy left and Mommy was mean. We, we moved from a middle-class uh, area into section-aged housing, and uh, we're a Jewish family, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism, and if you'd have grown up the way that I grew up, you'd have drank too. Uh, you're not supposed to pronounce anyone an alcoholic. It's kind of against the rules, isn't it? But my wife, I'm going to go out on a limb. She's, she's, I'm going to say she's alcoholic. And she grew up in the kind of home that I only dreamed of. Her parents were married many, many years after she left the home. She grew up in Cape Cod. Uh, oh, no, yeah, no, they had a boat. <laughs> It's better. They had a place. Her dad had a private plane. Now, I, I don't know if having a boat and a plane are a cure for alcoholism, but they got to be a start, don't they? I mean, I, mean, I don't know how the hell you can be an alcoholic when daddy's got a boat and a plane, for crying out loud. One of my first resentments in Alcoholics Anonymous was when they told me that the fact that I came from what I thought was a difficult childhood had nothing to do with my alcoholism. The book says we can't answer the riddle as to why a guy like me becomes a drunk, and then it doesn't go into it at all. Right? There, there is no discussion about my favorite topic, which is why. Right? I want to talk a lot about why. But there's no discussion in the book about that. And in fact, it turns out with my childhood, there are people in this world that had a lot worse childhood than I did. Now, if you're sitting in the room and you had the kind of childhood I'm about to describe, I want you to know, and in no way do I mean to belittle your experience. I don't mean to at all. There are people in Alcoholics Anonymous that had the type of childhood I'm going to explain. But there are people that had this kind of childhood and simply aren't alcoholics. They were beaten and they were starved and they were physically abused and locked in closets and treated in horrible manners that you guys like me only read about in the newspaper and they're not alcoholics. The worst thing about my childhood, quite frankly, it happened to me. 
If it would have happened to you, I'd tell you to get over it, punky. Doesn't it seem that when things happen to me, they're always worse than when they happen to you? I remember my first drink. I don't know if that makes me an alcoholic. It's interesting that I remember my first drink. I, I love Snickers bars. I do. I love the chocolatey, caramel, peanutty. I just love Snickers bars, right? But I don't remember my first Snickers bar. It stands to reason that there was Snicker number one that kicked the terrible cycle in motion, but I, I, I don't remember my first Snickers bar. I do remember my first drink. I was with a kid called Barry. I was nine years old. Uh, Barry was 11. That made him instantly cool. And I would have done anything Barry wanted to do. And in hindsight, I'm grateful that what Barry wanted to do was drink. Or I might have a completely different set of problems. <laughs> but, 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 but drink is what he wanted to do. And, and uh, we had Old English apple cider, which is just apple juice for the kick. We stood in front of a liquor store until some guy was kind enough to go in and buy this stuff for us. And we went and bought this stuff. And we went in a wooded area behind the liquor store. And I took a big slug on that bottle of Old English apple cider. And something happened to me at that moment that was going to happen not every time, but most of the time when I drank from that moment on. From that moment on, most of the time, I would relive the experience I had in that wooded area behind that liquor store with Old English apple cider. I took a big hit on that drink, and I puked out of my nose. Because I'm a nose puker. I just, I am. I'm, you, I know, I know. You might, be, you might be good at drinking, right? There are people in the room, I'm sure, that could, you, I could drink you under the table. And when you get there, I've been there for several rounds. Because if being able to consume large quantities of alcohol makes you an alcoholic, I fail on that count too. I'm not a good drinker. I have three or four drinks and I pee on the couch and I hit on your mom and it's just the kind of guy that I am. Because I'm not good at it. Right? I love that line in the book that we often do dangerously and disgusting things when drinking. And I'm not very dangerous, but boy, I get disgusting down. <laughs> I'm, I'm good at that one, boy. I, I, I am. But anyway, so I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a huge quantity drinker, I, I, uh, but I, I, I love it. I, you know what happened, though, when I took that drink? And I've heard this uh, described from the podium many times, many different ways. A lot of people have their own way of describing it. But, but here's kind of what happened to me on an emotional level. Nothing really happened, but somewhere inside of me what happened is I'm this short, fat Jewish kid living in a non-Jewish neighborhood. I'm, I feel a victim to anti-Semitism. My parents are divorced. I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. I don't think I've got nothing to offer. I take this drink of old English apple cider. I hold enough of it down for it to work its magic on me. And it feels like my parents get remarried. Right? It feels like I grow a couple of inches. It feels like I get a nose job. It feels like I lose 20 pounds. It feels like my foreskin grows back. I just want to make sure you're listening. <laughs> if you're sitting there wondering, what did you say? Pay attention. <laughs> you know, you know early, early in my drinking, uh, drinking fixed everything. Early in my drinking, everything I thought was wrong with me, drinking fixed. And at the end of my drinking, it didn't fix so much stuff no more, but what it did was it really made it okay for me to be broken. At the end of my drinking, I would feel like a, 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 a wreck. I would feel like a, a, a less of a person. I would feel 
insignificant. I would feel weak. I would feel depressed. I would feel alone. I would feel worthless. I would feel like I didn't measure up. I would feel like there was something in this world that I was missing. I would feel all those things that I used to feel when I was a kid and when I used to drink, those things would vanish. And at the end of my drinking, they wouldn't vanish. But damn it, they would make it okay for me to feel that way. And I could at least breathe feeling that way. And I loved to drink. And uh, 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 man, you know, I heard someone say from a podium one time, and I, it's, a, it's a poor misquote from the book, so I get it. But I heard him say one time that their, uh, I'm going to see if I can get this right, their best day uh, drinking, their best day drinking was, was, was terrible compared to their worst day sober. And I think to myself, what were you drinking? Because <laughs> my best day drinking, not my average day drinking, but my best day drinking was magic, right? I mean, wow! I got, I got pictures in my mind of memories. I remember this one particular time. It was uh, like 88 or 89. It was right before Touch of Grey came out, and the dead were still kind of, they wasn't cool, so they were still cool. And... So I'm going to show at Shoreline Amphitheater, and I'm on three hits of window pane, and it's a, it's a steep deal, and it's foggy and misty, and it's that kind of day they get in San Francisco where it's not raining, but you're still soaking wet, you know what I mean? And the, the bed, Jerry yells out, it feels like rain, and they start to play, and I tell you, I had the spiritual experience, the likes of which no 12-step call has ever provided. <laughs> If it was still like that, boy, I'm telling you, I'd still be grooving, right? I mean, that was, boy, man, give that up. You've got to be kidding me. But at the end of my drinking, it wasn't like that. I don't know what happened. I, I don't know how something so magical and so wonderful can turn and be so mean and so nasty. I don't know how that, I don't, I don't, I wasn't conscious for the change in what my drinking did. I was asleep at the wheel. It must have happened gradually, but I didn't care, right? I had hope. I just, I thought, I'm going to get back to shoreline one of these days, boy, right? But I, I had this, I went on this journey. I, this might surprise you. I was a uh, Ginsu knife salesman at county fairs. <laughs> but wait, there's more. So I'm this Ginsu knife salesman, and because of like this weird set of circumstances, I ended up on QVC and the Home Shopping Network, and I, oh, it was a blast. I was, I'm 23 years old, and I can't, I can't walk through a trailer park or an OJ's home without being mugged by the, by the residents. I mean, I'm, just, I'm famous in all the wrong places. But, 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 but I'm having a, I'm, I'm having a, 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 what would you would think would be a great time. I'm like Bill Wilson. I'm, I have arrived, right? I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm first class. I'm having a hoot. But I'm sitting in these hotel rooms afterwards, and I'm, and I'm drinking with a fury because the outsides look like they should be going good. I look like the kid from Section 8 Housing who's put his life back together. I look like the guy on a roll. I look, you would look at my life and you would go, look at, wow, he's Sheldon's arrived. But inside me, I feel like crap. I don't know why. I just feel like, 
God, you know, I can't, I, you know what I feel like? I feel like I can't continue to pretend to be this happy guy that they expect me to be. I can't keep the facade up, and I'm afraid they're going to see through it, so I drink. I'm afraid they're going to figure out about me what I figured about me, which is that I don't amount too much, that I'm no good, that I'm worthless, that it's all a game, that I'm pretending, that, 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 that oh, i got to have a drink. Man, that'll make you thirsty, right? And uh, I'm drinking, and I get in trouble at this job, and they fire me. They, uh, when they fired me, I knew why they fired me. They fired because they didn't like Jews. <laughs> That's not what they said. Uh, what they said was they didn't think it was appropriate that they should have a crack at it because they're national spokesperson. <laughs> but I knew the truth. I always know the truth. I knew. They fired me and I went and got another job. It was another good job. When they fired me from that job, they fired me because I make the secretaries cry. I'm not a secretary's cry kind of guy, right? I mean, I'm, but I made the same, what, ha what would happen with the boss called me in the office and he said, you know, we don't care what you do on your spare time. Uh, we're not, we know we're not going to drug test you or make you pee in bottles and if you want to go get drunk on Friday and Saturday, that's your business, but you can't show up to work drunk anymore, which I thought was unreasonable. <laughs> I knew they let the non-Jews show up drunk, but, uh, so I didn't drink. I'd come to work and I wouldn't drink. And when I don't drink, I, the, book, the book says restless, irritable, and discontent. Now, had you said to the girls I made cry at that office, oh, don't mind Sheldon, he's just restless, irritable, and discontent, they might have had a few different words to describe my behavior. But what he said to me, you can't drink, and I wanted that job. I just lost the other job. I was going to keep this job, and so I just didn't drink Monday through Friday, and I'm just not going to drink. And when I don't drink, something happens inside me that I can't explain, but it happens inside me. And I don't know what's happening inside me, but I think it's you. It's that breathing thing you're doing, a constant. I'm not really sure what it is, but something happens, and I get... Uh, so they excused me because I cranky and I'm irritable and I'm unreasonable and I'm yelling at people and they fired me from that job and then I got fired from my next job and uh, next thing you know I'm in an indigent detox for, for homeless people and I, I looked around that place and I could see why those people were in there they they belonged in there and it was probably good for them I, I'm the national spokesperson from QVC for crying out loud I, I'm homeless but that's not the point I'm better than this, but, uh, but I had nowhere to go. I had burned my dad. I'd burned my best friend. My best friend, I'd stolen from him when he'd let me stay at his house. I, I stole from him, uh, and I blamed his son for the theft. Oh, come on. <laughs> Am I in the PTA or something? Where, where are my people? You should celebrate that kind of behavior, for God's sakes. Oh. I just lost all identification with this section over here. I'm just kidding. I'm just playing with it. I'm just, I'm just, let's see, Al-Anons. I'm just teasing. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean it. But, 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 but so I got nowhere to go and no one to talk. And I'm, I'm lost. And so, and so I check into this indigent detox. And uh, I went from there to a halfway house. I mean, I heard something in AA. I didn't hear the laughter. You know, we do a lot of laughing. I, I do a lot of laughing. We got to laugh. I cry, I'm telling you, I cried enough. And I've done some crying in sobriety, too. But I've done, 
Even the crying I've done in sobriety, I'll do more of it probably if I live long enough. God, I hope, I hope I live long enough to cry again, right? But I still have done enough even though there's more to come. So I, so I did laughing, but it wasn't the laughter that I heard at first. It was the pain. It was the lady that was speaking, and Aura from, from, from L.A. used to say the pain in this person reached out and touched the pain in her, and that was my experience with this particular speaker. She talked, and I heard, I heard the, the, the loneliness and the brokenness, and I saw that this person didn't feel that way anymore, and I, I identified with the hurt, and I knew there was something in AA for me. Um, the only thing about it that I didn't like was that you wanted me to quit drinking. <laughs> it seemed a little drastic at the time, but I, I went in this halfway house, and I stayed there for 30 days, and I left there, and what started next was the worst three years of my life. I got sober to get drunk to get sober to get drunk to get sober to get drunk. And I didn't mean to get sober to get drunk at the beginning. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous to get the heat off. I wanted my dad to talk to me again. I, I wanted my boss to let me get my job back. I wanted my friends to not be so mad at me. I wanted the things that AA can provide. And if you come to AA for those reasons, maybe you come to get the judge off your back. Whatever reason you come here for, AA will provide exactly what you ask for. I didn't ask to stay sober. I asked to get the heat off. AA provided that. If I told my dad I was going to an AA meeting, he would give me 20 bucks. Oh, you are here. Do you need any money? So I told him I went to a lot more meetings than I did, right? Because I, but, 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 but so I, I, but I'm going in and I'm getting loaded to get sober. And I, at first I didn't want to get sober, but, but towards the end of my drinking, I wanted to be, I, I don't know if I wanted to be sober. That might be an exaggeration. Because I don't know what sober means. When I'm new, here's what I think sober means. I think when a guy gets up here and says, you know, my name's Sean Clare, I'm an alcoholic, I'm sober since July 17 in 1996, and I tell you I'm 17 years sober, I don't think that 17 years sober is active in a home group with a sponsor, sponsoring guys, having gone through the process, actively involved in cleaning up the wreckage every day with a connection to a God that he can believe in and understand and have faith in. I don't know that that's what he said. I think he's felt three days sober for 17 years. And I think you poor bastard, right? That is nothing to celebrate, right? If I got to feel like this, because when I'm not drinking and I'm in a state of abstinence, I just feel locked up. I feel afraid and angry, and I don't even know that I'm afraid, but I know that I'm angry. And I don't like you, and I don't know why I like you, but I don't like you, and I don't like me. And I can't breathe in this world. This, I love that scene in, a, in, in the Days of Wine and Roses when she's looking out of the window. And she, you don't understand. When I look at this world, it is black and white. It was scary. And I, didn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine. And then somebody says, if you don't think you can stay sober for a long time, Sheldon, don't worry about that. In AA, we do this one day at a time. Now, I understand that. Sober a long time, with all the tools that I have in Alcoholics Anonymous, I stay sober one day at a time. And when I have a bad day, it's okay, because i got a sponsor. I sponsor guys. I'm actively involved in my home group. i got commitments. I'm actively involved in cleaning up the records of the past and the present. I'm making amends. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm actively involved. I'm doing everything I should do. I get that. But when I'm one day or two days or five days or six weeks sober, and you say one day at a time, what it sounds like is one day at a time. <laughs> one long, miserable, 24-hour period of absolute hell at a time. You will suffer for 24 hours, and when it's over, you will do it again, again, again. One day at a time is not good news when I'm newly sober. And then some genius says, if you can't do it one day at a time,
time it's okay, show them do it one hour at a time, and I can hear the clock tick. As the cell door slam. Because I don't know what it feels like to be sober and active in my home group and involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know what it feels like to be sober. I'm not going to drink. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I hate you. I hate me. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do it. No drinking. No drinking. No drinking. Drink. I drink. It's okay. No more. We're going to start again. Start again. Start again. Drink. 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 No drink. Don't drink. Don't drink. And every now and again I hear something in a meeting when people laugh, I'm kind of jarred out of myself and I wonder what they laughed at and then I think to myself, don't do it, don't drink, 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 don't drink, 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 drink. <laughs> and, so, and so I go get drunk again and then I get sober to get loaded to get sober to get loaded and everything's difficult, my job's difficult, my family's difficult, my life's difficult and so I drink again. And then somebody says to me, are you done yet? Am I done what? I don't know, I don't know what the question means. Have you had enough? Have I had enough of what? I mean, first of all, how can you ever have enough of anything that's equal that you know you've never had enough of to begin with? Uh, I can't get enough. That's part of my problem. But have I had enough of my life? Are you kidding me? I drive down the road with tears in my eyes when no one's watching me, praying for the nerve to slam my car into the bridge abutment. Have I had enough? If I could imagine another way to live, I would live another way, but I can't imagine another way. Of course I want this madness to end. The problem is the only way I can see that it would end would be with suicide, and on top of everything, I'm a coward. That is, you know, the people that I loved that last night when, when, when Mickey was talking, the people that talk about suicide as a coward's way out have never had suicidal thoughts. Because if I were braver, I'd have gone through with it. My problem is I'm suicidal and a coward on top of everything else I think about myself. I mean, God, you know, and I, I'm not going to drink, I'm going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm going to drink. The book says there will come a time in a man's life where he can't imagine life without alcohol. Nine years old in the wooded area, the kid called Barry Durham, I knew I was going to drink whenever I could as much as I could from that day forward. There will come a time in a man's life where he can't imagine life with or without alcohol. It will be a jumping off place and they'll wish for the end. That started to happen to me sometime early in 1996 where I started to know that my life was over and I couldn't this way no more. I've been going in and out of alcohol and And I wanted to die and I couldn't. And I knew the truth. And the truth was I was going to drink again. I was going to drink again. It didn't matter. I was going to show up at another AA meeting and raise my hand until the women who come. I'm going to do that. Right? I'm going I'm to help you stack chairs and talk to you after the meeting, and then I'm going to drink again. And I don't know why I'm going to drink again, but I'm going to drink again. I'm going to drink again because I always drink again. That's what I do. I drink again. And I don't know why and I don't know when, but I'm going to drink again. And you know what? We can sit here and play happy horse crap for as long as you like, but I'm going to drink again. And my solution isn't your solution because here's what you say, and you don't say this, but this is what I hear you say. You say, hi, my name's Sheldon. I'm an alcoholic. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I quit drinking. Now my life's wonderful. Thanks very much for letting me share. We're all done. And I don't know. You don't say that, but that's what I hear you say. You don't say that, but that's what I hear you say. July 17th of 19... July 16th of 19... July... July 4th of 1996. I went to a party. 4th of July party. That's how I know it was the 4th. Because it was a 4th of July party. <laughs> so I go to this party. I go to this party and, I, and, I, and I, we, we drink everything you can drink. We drink the stuff you don't talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous. We just drink it. And I'm laying in the back of this car that I'm sleeping in that night and I know, I know the truth. And I know the truth as clear as I know the truth today and the truth is the party's over. But it ain't never going to be Shoreline no more with Jerry playing that song and that, missed, that, that day's gone. 
I'm going to linger, and it's going to be like this forever, and I don't want to live like this, and I don't know how to stop, and I got no hope, and I'm broken, and it's over. Even the hope I used to have of every now and again that maybe just maybe perhaps this time I'll be able to get a, it won't be a crying jag, but it'll be a party, it's gone. I come back to Vegas, I was in California, I get back to Vegas and start going to the regular meetings that I usually go to and I keep drinking and getting sober and drinking and nothing changed and nothing's going to change. And the Buddhists say that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I was probably two or three days sober. It was a noon meeting. And a gentleman shared he shared about loneliness. He didn't share much about drinking. He shared about loneliness. He shared about not fitting in his own family, not fitting in his own skin. He talked about how painful it was for him to be sober. He talked about the disappointment of getting loaded again, against his will, it seemed like. And I heard him. And I went up to him after the meeting, and I told him that I heard him, and I told him I needed help, and he told me he would be my sponsor. And that's the way I remember it. Maybe I asked him if he would. I don't know. I don't remember it that way. I remember it where he told me he would be my sponsor. He told me to meet him at the detox. And I met him at the detox meeting the following Tuesday. And I had about, I had less time than most of the clients at the detox. <laughs> and he told me to share my experience. And that night I went to a big book study at his house. And I've been going to detox meetings, halfway house meetings, jail meetings, and big book studies ever since. I got involved in a group of guys that, that used to scare me in Alcoholics Anonymous. These are the big book carrying, who's your sponsor, what, Stepion, are you working with any new guy group of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? They, I, those guys, I don't, they just took, they just a little over the top, to be honest. <laughs> and the only reason I hung out with them is because the cribbage players didn't want to hang out with me no more. You can only borrow so much money from the cribbage players before they tell you you can't play cribbage no more. You know, I, I, uh, they, they didn't want nothing to do with me. The, the casual AA member didn't want anything to do with me. It was only these zealots that had any, any interest in me. And they, uh, they'd take me to coffee, and they'd, they'd talk to me, and they... It was amazing. I did, my, I did my steps way too fast. I, one of my resentments in early sobriety, you're supposed to do one step a year. I'm 30 days sober doing my fifth step saying, this just this isn't right. <laughs> I had a guy that sponsored a lot of my friends that said, you're, you're drowning man. Lake Mead is a huge body of water near us. And he said, you're in Lake Mead and you're drowning man. How long can you tread water for, kid? When do you want the life preserver? Do you want it now or do you want to wait till you've gone under a few times? And I'd already gone under a few times. I wanted the life preserver now. So I did my, I did my, my, uh, my, 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 uh, I tell you what, we, we read the reading this morning was very cool because we read about step two. I'll share with you a little bit about my second step experience. Um, I told you that, that I grew up in a Jewish home. The truth is, is that we are atheist Jews. <laughs> explain that to you. What, what, atheist Jews. What that means is, is that we're Jewish but we know we're wrong. <laughs> That's what that means. We're Jewish, but we know we're wrong. The only people on the planet that we know who are more wrong than us are crazy Christian neighbors. Those people completely lost their minds. <laughs> I got memories of my mom and I getting, my brother getting ready to go to temple, and she's telling me how 
you know, religion is the opiate of the masses, and these people that believe in God are crazy, now put your tie on, we're going to be late for show, right? And this is, this is, this is, how, I, this is how, I, how, I, how I grew up. And so, so I get to AA, and I get that I, you can't live my life and not do step one before you get sober. You just, some people do step one sober, and step one is a hopeless, painful step, and doing it sober must really suck, right? <laughs> Doing it drunk ain't no prize, but I think it's the easier, softer way, right? So I get here, and I've already done step one. I wore my life to the ground, and uh, we start talking about God, and I can't hear that talk. I'm right out of the book. I'm the newcomer whose face rises when you talk about, uh, you know, barbecues and playing cribbage and hanging out and going to weekend retreats. And, but then when we talk about God, I go, huh? Because I think, I've, first of all, I can't believe in my God, right? I can't believe, I can't believe in the Jewish God. I can't. Uh, and I can't believe in your God. Um, I, when you say God as we express himself, you know, you, who do you think you're kidding, right, to a new guy walking in the room? Imagine if you were in a Muslim country and they talked about God as he may express himself in the group conscience. You would know who they were talking about. And it felt that alien to me. And, and you know, I know this isn't a Christian country, but it's a, if you're, trust me, if you're not a Christian, it's a Christian country, right? So anyway, so, so I feel this, this deal, right? And I can't do your God. Besides, my people killed your guy. Right? I mean, how, how do you make amends for that, right? Dear God. I know that great 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 grandpa Isaac got together with his buddies and killed your one begotten son. I mean, I don't know how to do that, right? So I can't do my God, I can't do your God, I'm completely confused. And besides that, I think I've done God, because even with all that resistance, when you're beat up the way that I'm beat up, you'll try anything, and I tried to do religion. I tried the Christian faith. There was a girl that wanted what I had, and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. And I followed her to church. And, and, you know, with all my prejudice, I'm in this church, and this preacher, this guy was unbelievable. I gotta tell you, and again, I want you to know, this is my little disclaimer here. Don't hear this story wrong. This, the point of this story is my inability to hear, not their inability to talk. This story is about, I wish that I had been able to hear that day. Because people who are truly lit up with their faith, I have nothing but admiration and jealousy for. So please don't misunderstand this. I'm telling you my story pre-sobriety. Pre-sobriety. But this guy starts to talk, and he hit me in a way that was, it just, I forgot about the girl. I was like, this is cool. That's what I need. I felt thirsty for what he was. And then he says, is there anybody, I, I guess he does this every Sunday that wants to come down to the front and let me pray over. I get up. I'm a, pray over me, right? I want some of this. I'm thirsty for this. And he prays over us all, and then he sees me. He singles me out. Would you like to talk after the service? We can meet in the... Uh, yes! Because I... Whatever is broken in me is not broken in him, and he was not judging me so I could hear him, because a lot of times I felt judged by people. I didn't feel judgment from him. He was a kind man. And he, who, I mean, I was, yes. We go back into uh, uh, the little room afterwards, and, and this, is, this kind of particular church was a church that believed in talking in tongues. 
So he starts to pray, and then he says he was, felt like he was being moved by the Holy Spirit, and he started to talk in tongues. Now, if you're of that faith, what that sounds like is God being in your body, in your spirit, and moving you in a way that is magical and beautiful. And if you're not in that faith, it sounds like, and that's what it sounded like to me. Right? And I looked at this guy, and I was scared. I was, what on earth is this? Then he says to me, I feel the spirit moving you too. You should talk in tongues. Now, I want to fit in. I'm the guy that goes to the 7 a.m. meeting. Here's the thing that makes everybody go, oh, yeah, and then repeats it at the noon meeting, even though I have no idea what it means, right? I'm just that guy. I'm the chameleon, right? My brother says, no personality of my own. The preacher says, we're going to talk in tongues. I go, for the irony of it, when I left the church having watched this thing, and here's what it felt like to me, and you've got to understand this, I'm not goofing on this because here's what happened deep inside my heart, was that I knew God touched that guy and I was there and nobody touched me. I sat in that room believing that I was there turning myself over to this power and I couldn't feel the power, and I left that deal and I walked up to my car and I had a flat tire. Now, I didn't think to myself it's because I needed new tires, which, trust me, Racing slicks do not belong on the street. I just knew that God was sending me. If there was a... Not you, pal. My, my love and grace is for other people. It's not for people like you. People like you don't get my love and grace. Not you. Another time, I got a guy that... Uh, a misguided guy. Good guy. AA member. On fire for his religion. Two years, three years sober. Brings me a big book in the Bible. I read the big book. I don't know. I kind of had some identification with it. It kind of made a little sense to me. And he gives me this thing called the sinner's prayer. He says, if you really mean it, Sheldon, if you really mean it, and you'll pray this prayer, if you really mean it, and you pray this prayer, God will come into your life in magical and meaningful ways, and he'll solve your problems. You have to really mean it. Whatever. I go home, and I stick the prayer up on a shelf. And a couple weeks later, I'm having one of my crying jags, and I'm depressed as I get depressed, and my life's over as my life often feels like it's over. I'm in the shower, and I'm weeping. I get out of the shower, and if you're picturing this, picture me with clothes on. It's a much better story. <laughs> but, but I was naked, but, but I get out of the shower, and I, I get this prayer, and I get on my knees, and I say this prayer, and I, water's dripping on the paper, and I'm, tears are dripping on the paper. Dear God, and I say this sinner's prayer. Nothing. 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 No harps, no, no clean wind blowing through and through. Right? Nothing. I'm used to taking something, smoking something, drinking something, getting somewhere, getting there fast, right? I'm no good with creeper weed. I'm the guy, right? I'm the guy that had this third, I'm on the way, I've had three joints of creeper weed, I'm on my way back to Chewy's house to straighten him out and get distracted by haagen on the way, right? But I, I'm just that guy, right? I'm just, not, I want to feel it now, and I didn't feel it now, and so I think that God don't love me, don't care about me. I can't, I've done God, can't do God. Do you now believe, or are you even willing to believe in a power greater than yourself? Do I now believe? Nope. Are you willing to believe? What do you mean? Willing. I mean, even willing. A little bit. Like, you probably think I'm wrong, but maybe, perhaps, possibly, maybe. Probably not. It's unlikely, but maybe, perhaps, willing. Maybe. 
Probably not, probably wrong, probably crazy, probably absolutely no, but maybe. Perhaps willing that maybe, perhaps, maybe. It's unlikely, but maybe. Well, I can't say no to that. I'm a jerk. <laughs> I mean, I'm a stubborn jerk, but even I can't say no to that. And if you can say yes to that, then we're emphatically, like with enthusiasm, like, yeah, you can, you got it, Sparky. Let's get on our knees, say a prayer. You're a selfish pig. We're writing a list. Yay! That's <laughs> kind of my experience, right? Now, 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 I want to be the guy to get stuck on step two and step three because I don't want to have a God in my life. Well, that's okay. What do you mean that's okay? Well, that's okay. How can that be okay? How can I, how can I, well... Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. The result, the only result, the result of these steps. Having had the result, how can you have a spiritual awakening of the type we talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous as a result of these steps you ain't took yet? Huh. Okay, so do a poll, right? You do a poll of your friends that you admire and respect with, say, five or ten years more sobriety and say to them, why are you sober today? I'm sober today, right? We, I don't know where we learned the party line. You, you'd think they passed our little cards or something, right? But the, the party line is, I'm sober today by the grace of a loving God that I was introduced to by my work in the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm sober today because of the grace of God that I found in AA. I'd like to thank AA for God, and I'd like to thank God for AA. Right? Right. It's true, right? I'm not goofing on it. It's the reality. It's the truth of the situation. So if I could find God in step three, what the hell would I do step four? Have you lost your mind? Deny, deny, deny. First rule of the street, for God's sakes, right? Deny, deny, deny. One of my favorite shows is First 48, right? You guys ever watch that? It's a cop show, right? And they get, they always seem to trick the guy into copping on himself, right? He confess. You know what they do? The first thing they do when, he co when he's ready to cop, they turn a long yellow notepad around and they spin it to him and they say, write resentments. I mean, they may as well, right? Write, write your confession. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing five. I'm certainly not doing nine, right? Not in the shit I got away with anyway, right? I mean, the stuff you caught me for, I guess, but you want me to do step nine on stuff I got away with. If I could find God in step three, I'd be a ha I would do one, two, three, buy a van conversion and sleep with newcomer girls in the parking lot. That's, that's, those guys work in that program, right? But I, but, and if I could have done that, I'd have done that for crying out loud, but I couldn't do that. I had to go through the process to have the result that is promised, which is I end up with this connection with God. I had to take the steps. I had to do the journey. And, uh, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of my post. I'm going to talk about my dad for a minute. I, I've had a journey with my dad that has been a journey. Um, I, um, <laughs> I write my full step. And, and if you're new and you're stuck on your full step, I've got to tell you that we could write the resentment list for you. We don't because we, well, it's fun to watch you squirm. But, but, <laughs> but we could, right? It goes, it goes mom, dad. Current spouse, siblings, current employer, previous spouse, 
previous employer, previous spouse, previous employer, and then dwindles down to anybody that's had just about any insignificant contact in my pathetic little life to this point. So I show, so I show up with my, with my, I'm pathetic, you know. I, I show up with my, with my four-step to my sponsor's house and we talk about my dad. My dad was, uh, I hated my, he left when I was two and when he left my life turned upside down and everything wrong in my life was my dad's fault and I hated my dad. And we talked about my dad and uh, I could, there was no moving me. We did, this was our call, there was no moving me. I just hate, my dad was wrong. The sponsor says to me, you know, that old AA trusted deal you know, your dad did the best for you that he could with the tools your dad had. My attitude was get new tools. Get new goddamn tools. I was two years old. You had no right to leave the way you did. When he left, he didn't just leave the house. He didn't just leave the city. He left the goddamn country. He moved from England to America. I saw him once a year. And I, and I didn't have it. And I had other divorced friends. And their dad stayed in town. And they were great dads just not living in the house. And I felt robbed. I felt my dad, if he really just left my mom, not us kids, which was the story he told me, I felt like he'd have stayed in town near us kids, but he didn't. He left us, and I hated him. And there's no moving me. What about your mom? Well, my mom is, uh, you know, she's better now. She's had some therapy, and she's a member of Al-Anon. God bless Al-Anon. My mom did some great work in Al-Anon, and I'm forever grateful uh, to the work that my mom did in Al-Anon. My stepdad wasn't too grateful because... He ended up in treatment, but, anyway, <laughs> but, but he's, he's six years sober today, so, so he's grateful too, right? But, but, uh, 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 but at the time, my mom would scream and yell a lot, and she was very, she was panic attacks, and, and just, I mean, really, when you went home, it, you didn't know, your behavior, I assume, didn't matter, it could have been good, and she might have yelled at you, I was never good, I'm just guessing that, but... <laughs> But if I was bad, it did, she, she would sometimes be kind and loving, sometimes be mean. She was very hard to live with. I hated living with her. It was very difficult. So this is our course. We realized the person that offended was perhaps spiritually sick. And my mom was spiritually sick. She, she had had some emotional issues that she had to work out from childhood. She did some therapy. She did some work in Al-Anon. Uh, uh, she really was spiritually sick. And I didn't like her symptoms all the way they disturbed me. Trust me, I did not. But they, like ourselves, were sick, too. She, like me, was sick. She did things driven like I've done things when I was driven. She, I would catch her crying after she'd yelled at me and my brother. I said, what's the matter? I just hate the way I treat you kids. She didn't like the way she was. She was driven to that. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer that I'm not a bad guy trying to get good. I'm a sick guy trying to get well. And uh, I believe in the philosophy that I am not guilty for most of the stuff I did when I was out there running around. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am responsible, and we have a responsibility step, and I must clean all of that stuff up. But I'm not guilty. I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity. I'm driven to that stuff. I behave that way against my will. But if I want to accept that, I have to be willing to give that. That must be a two-way street, or it's a lie. And so I start to see in my mom, geez, my mom was driven by her sickness, and maybe she didn't really mean it, and I could see I behaved in ways, and I don't fall back in love with my mom right away, but I get a little understanding in my mom, and there's a little crack in the wall between me and my mom, and I start to see how if she'd have, if I'd have been left with two boys the way she'd have been left with two boys, if I'd have grown up, you know, my mom, bless her soul, she, 
was in this middle class neighborhood in this Jewish community and it was a, 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 a middle class community and uh, when my dad left and we moved into Section 8 housing, she couldn't get a job, she, was an uns she didn't have any skills, so she went to her school friends and asked if she could be their maid. So when I was being raised up, I was being raised up on the money of a woman who went into her childhood friends' homes as help. And that must have been hard for her. And, uh, and she, it, must have, it must have broken her terribly. And so she's just damn and I try and understand that. And I, I get to see <clears throat> in my mom uh, how, how that might have been. I get to let her off the hook a little bit. I get to have understanding and compassion from which grew some forgiveness and over the last 17 years. My mom and I have the best relationship we have ever had. I don't want to tell you a storybook. It is not perfect, but it is the best relationship we have ever had and, and, and hopefully it will continue to improve. So then my sponsor says, what about your dad? What about my dad? What was it like, do you think, for your dad to live with your mom? Do you think your mom was a happy, normal person with no problems at all? that was just a delight to be around, and the day your dad left, she changed. Or do you think it's possible, and only possible, is it possible, is it possible, not likely, we don't know, but is it possible that your mom and dad got married in that small town in the north of England, in that tiny little Jewish community in the end of the 1960s, when the men were still being sent in conscription, still left over from the Second World War, they had to serve two years in the army, do you think it's possible they got married quickly before he really knew your mom? Is it possible? I don't know. Was it possible that during that time as he started to get to know your mom and thought maybe perhaps he'd made a little mistake because she wasn't that easy to live with, she wound up pregnant with your brother? Well, I don't know that either. I know you don't know, but you build your life based upon the idea that you know what happened. I'm just wondering if there's another possibility. I, I guess, right? I guess. Is it possible that he would have left when your brother was two years old out of diapers and all it would have taken is some money for him to send to get your mom to be okay and she wound up pregnant with you. So he stayed. So he stayed as long as he could until both boys were out of diapers and all it would have taken is a few bucks a month for her to be okay, not perfect, but okay. And he stayed as long as he could and when he left, had he stayed in that small town, the only way he could have stayed and defend his honor would be to destroy hers. The only way, if he'd have stayed there, he'd have had to talk to his friends and family about what, how difficult she was to live with. And the only way that he could defend her honor was to leave and not be there and let everybody call him the bad guy. Is it possible that he did the most kind and courageous thing to defend your mom's honor? First time in my life those words come out of my mouth. Maybe. Maybe. What would you have done if you were your dad, Sheldon? This is not fair. Uh, freaking Jedi mind tricks these guys play around. Not so good for an army, thanks. Nice Yoda. Oh, God. What would I have done? When I was 16 years old, I went down to the government and I told them that my mom had thrown me out of the house and I had nowhere to go and I did that because I couldn't stand to live with that woman no more, not for one more minute because I could not stand to be in that house. What would I have done? I'd have come home, she'd have said she was pregnant with my brother, I'd have said, good luck! And I'd have taken off and run for the hills. Because that's how I live my life, that's how I've always lived my life, that's what I do. And that's what I would have done. I would have packed my bags and run for the hills. And I don't fall right back in love with my dad right away, but I get, 
I get, to, I get to see that I, in his shoes, may have behaved the same way. From, from understanding comes compassion, from compassion comes forgiveness, from forgiveness may grow love. And I don't have a perfect relationship with my dad, but it's the best it's ever been. It's the best it's ever been. I'm going to tell you a little bit about, uh, about my dad. I, I'm going to wait a minute. Uh, my journey in, in uh, step six and seven, uh, I've been, I remember showing up at my sponsor's house one time, completely broken apart, crying like a baby. And he brings me to his house, and we sit down, we talk, and he says, we talk about what's going on. I said, oh, you have a step six problem. So what are you talking about, a step six problem? You have a step six problem. You know, well, like God, how can I have a step six problem? I am an active, everyday member of my home group. I am paying my ninth step, and I am sponsoring guys. I've done step six. That was what he did. He laughed. He thought he was funny. <laughs> the story of my sobriety, he says, the story of my serenity, he says, is directly proportionate to how willing I am to do step six in any given day. And that has been my experience. I, have, I am journeying on step six with my willingness to turn this stuff over to God. I have learned, I have learned that uh, what I need God for is not what I thought I needed God for. I thought I needed God to help me get a job. I prayed for a job. I thought God was in the employment business. I prayed for the right place to live. Dear God, give me a good place to live. I thought he was a real estate agent. Dear God, give me a girl. I thought he was a pimp. I just did. I just did. I just did. And, and, and I, this is Sheldon's experience, right? So your experience, he may provide those things. In my experience, he doesn't. In my experience... I go get a job and he helps me behave the way a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous should behave at that job. I go get a house and he helps me have a house full of love and Alcoholics Anonymous principles. I get a girl and he helps me treat her in a kind and loving way and forgive her as quickly as I can for the stuff that she does wrong and apologize fast for the stuff that I do wrong. And that's what I think God does. And in step six, I'm learning what God does. What I can't do in step six, God does in step seven. And that has been the journey of my sobriety. In step nine, I go about the business of making amends. I was telling a friend of mine earlier today. I went about the business of buying my self-respect back one nickel and one dime at a time. I've made uh, my amends. I, there are two left. Uh, one, I can't find the guy. Last I heard, he owned a bar in Costa Rica. Um, but the guy that knew that about him didn't have a phone number, didn't know how for me to find him. This is a guy that I work for. While I was drunk, I thought he was hitting on a girl. I thought I was hitting on so I hit him. We were all doing a lot of hitting that day. I can't find him. I think he's in Costa Rica. And another one is a business that I stole from that I have sent 20 emails and made 10 phone calls, and they will not respond, and I can't find a way to make direct amends to them. I, someone said, you can make a donation in their name instead, and I will if they'll tell me who to donate the money to in their name. I can make charitable donations all I like, but unless it's in their direction, it's not the amends to them. Can you imagine if you stole $500 from me, you couldn't find me for 10 years, and you bumped into me, and I said, what about the 500 I said, oh, you gave that to the YMCA. Well, I might still want my 500 if it were me. You might look at that differently. I made amends to my parents. I made amends to my dad. My dad is uh, my dad is a rascal. I love my dad. My dad is a rascal. My dad will let you down, and he knows he'll let you down. And he's sorry he let you down. He can't stop letting you down. He's a rascal. 
He's not a bad man. He's a good man with a big heart that can't stop himself from behaviors that he wishes he could stop himself. But I didn't see that. I said get new tools. My dad was not doing the best he could with the tools he provided. My dad made choices to hurt me, which isn't true. My dad made choices because he was driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity that he could not help himself from making, and I know he regretted making them, but he couldn't stop himself. And I acted like they were choices. I acted like he chose to make those decisions, that he had no choice over whether or not he made, and I was wrong for that. My dad's dying. Um, my dad's a miracle. They gave my dad two months, three months ago. I went and saw him. I went to see him before that moment when they call you to go see him because I wanted to see him when I could talk to him. And I wanted to go see him because I wanted to tell him, I wanted to tell him, Dad, I know, I get it, I know, I know you, if you could have, you would have, and you couldn't. And I, I practiced ten different ways to make that speech. And every time I came up with the words, here's what it sounded like. Dad, I forgive you for not being enough of a man. It's not an amends. How do you say that to someone? How do, you, how do I say to someone, you know, I know you didn't have the tools that you should have had because you suck, but I forgive you because I'm wonderful. <laughs> it's what it felt like. Every time I practiced the words, it felt like I was saying that to him. It felt like I was saying to him, I know if you could have been more of a man, you would have been. He's, he, trust me, he's been saying that to himself for years. He don't need to hear that from me. But I'm going there to see him, then it will probably be the last time I see him, if not alive, conscious. And I wanted, to, I wanted to tell him what AA had taught me, and I didn't know how to say it. And it's been a, I can't, it's been a journey with my dad. It's been tears, and it's been, it's been a journey with my dad. My sponsor said to me about five years ago, you get to choose the last five or ten years you have with your dad. You're writing your own story. Ten years from now when he dies, do you want to tell the story of how you hated him and you didn't talk to him? Or do you want to tell the story of how you did work to forgive him and you had him in your life? You have an 11-year-old son at the time my son was six. What memory do you want to give your son about his grandfather? Do you want him to have a good memory for the rest of his life? For 75 or 80 more years, what relationship do you want him to remember? Because he will remember your relationship with your father. What gift do you want to give him? So I decided to behave better than I felt, because that's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I decided to consciously, even though I was angry with him, to act like I forgave him. And as always happens when I got the news he was dying, that forgiveness went from false to real, because that's what happens when you hear someone. So I went to go tell my dad that I, I got inspired. God will do that for me. I got inspired. And I told my dad, I said, Dad, I was sitting with him and I'm holding his hand. And I said, I want you to know something, Dad. And he didn't want to hear anything much. I said, no, I've got to tell you this. I've got to tell you that there are things about me that I really love. I've got a great sense of humor. And if you look at you and you look at Mom, it's pretty clear where the sense of humor came from, Dad. <laughs> I love my mom, but you're the one that gave me the gift of being able to make people laugh. And I am grateful for the sense of humor. I'm a salesman, Dad. You're a salesman. Mom's not a salesman. I've provided my family with an amazing living because of the gifts that I got being your son. Your DNA and your blood coursing in my veins have given me some of the most beautiful things about my life, and I am grateful you're my dad. I don't want another dad. I am grateful. And that's why I thought I went to England, because he's in England. I thought I went to England to tell him that. 
That's not why I went to England. He took my hand and he said to me, I don't know if I believe in God, Sheldon. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. I don't know if there's some reckoning. I don't know if the lights just turn out. I don't know what happens. But if what happens is I get another shot at life, if what happens is I get to do this again, I hope I am the kind of man that you've become. <laughs> and a little boy, two years old, sitting in Section 8 housing, knew that it was okay. I just knew that it was okay. It was okay. And that's all I wanted, isn't it? Isn't that what the drinking was about and the doping was about and the craziness was about and coming to AA's about and working steps is about and being involved in AA? It's just about being okay. If you're not okay, do something different. If you're okay, God bless you. I'm glad you're okay. I'm okay. I'm more than okay. I'm on fire. I got a God in my life today. I told you that I struggle with God. I tell you, I am... I'm the guy that if I'm left... This is so funny because in my home group I share about... I tell a lie in my home group. <laughs> Not here I didn't. Just in my home group. <laughs> but I say this to the newcomer so the newcomer can understand that I understand. And I tell him this story. I tell him that if I went home tonight with my wonderful life and my life is wonderful, if I went home tonight and I sat on my couch and I pondered my life and I thought about my life, that I would not spiral up out of control and start giggling with happiness about my life but that I would in fact spiral down into depression. And although that is true sometimes for me still today, there are many times where I sit on that couch and I think about my life and I do spiral up. And I do giggle about how wonderful my life has become. I'm a broken individual. I'm a homeless guy. I'm unemployable. I treat my family in ways that makes them hate and disrespect me and wish that I wouldn't come around. I'm friendless. I'm useless. And I'm worthless. And I know it. And then I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I take some actions. And I get actively involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. And healing happens. Healing happens. I'm not ashamed of who I am today. My brother got sober after I did. I don't know if I influenced that or not, but my brother got sober after I did. My mom did work in Al-Anon. My stepdad got sober. I have a beautiful wife. I met her in AA. We have an AA home. I have a beautiful son, he's 11 years old, and, and, and he tells me what his friends tell him their homes are like, some of them. And some of them have the screaming and the yelling, and he tells me that his friends are afraid, and they talk about that at school. And he tells me that he's grateful that our home is full of love. I catch him praying sometimes. I love catching him praying. He was eight years old, and he said to me, I was telling a friend of mine this this morning, he says, when he was eight years old, he says, Dad, I want, because in our home, we don't have, she's Catholic, I'm Jewish, we don't have an organized religion. She don't believe in hers. I don't believe in mine. But we got, we got a lot of God in our house. We, we're very confused. But, but God digs our confusion. He thinks we're silly. So he, he's okay with it. Uh, and if you're not, talk to him. Anyway, but, but, but he, 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 so he says to me, Why did he, tell me about, the, I hear you say on the phone that you're praying spiritual principles. What does that mean? And I had to come up with a way to explain it to an eight-year-old. Uh, I'm glad, because 
that's about where I'm at spiritually. If it was like a 28-year-old that could form long sentences, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> but I could talk to an 8-year-old. But I thought about it for a few minutes, and this is what I was inspired to tell him. And, uh, and I've shared this with guys I sponsor ever since, and I try and remember this myself. When you are disturbed, try and figure out as quickly as you can who is wrong. Sometimes it'll be you. Sometimes it'll be them. Usually it'll be a little bit you and a little bit them. But try and figure out who is wrong. If it's you, apologize quickly. If it's them, forgive them fast. The spiritual principles I told him can be boiled down to that, honey. If you will live your life in forgiving quickly and apologizing fast, you will get to have a life where you fit with your fellows and you belong in this world. And my eight-year-old son smiled and now he says to me sometimes, I'll say, what are you doing, honey? He goes, I'm trying to forgive him, Dad. <laughs> Fast as I can. <laughs> About uh, ten years ago, holiday time, my, my wife wanted me to go to the market for him. It was Christmas, so why not, right? <laughs> Once a year. <laughs> so I go to the market for I'll get the last few things for the holiday meal. And uh, I'm at, we live in a nice neighborhood now. We're back in the middle-class middle neighborhood. And, uh, the lady's in her middle-class dress with a middle-class jewelry. got a middle-class hair done. She's in the aisle before me. She's got a little middle-class two-year-old kid, one-year-old kid, whatever, sitting in the carriage. He's dressed in his little middle-class clothes, and we're in the middle-class grocery store, and everybody's being happy. And we're, hi, it looks like something out of, you know, a wonderful, hi, how are you? But she's like, hi, hi nice, to, Merry Christmas, right? Very, very happy time. And as we get down the aisle, there's the candy rack that they have at the grocery store. And her kid goes, Mama, can I have a chocolate bar? And she goes, no, honey, you don't need a chocolate bar. When you get home, we'll get you an apple. And the kid goes, I don't want a candy bar, I want a candy bar, I want a candy bar, I want a candy bar, mommy, mommy, mommy. I want a candy bar, mommy, mommy, a candy bar. Well, this woman is no longer, hi, how are you? She starts to get what I can only describe as restless, irritable, and discontented. She's like, you know, grabbing stuff from a kid and telling the checkout lady, hurry up and scowling at me. And she's like, what are you looking at? And just kind of, And the kid's going, I want a candy bar, give me a candy bar, I want a candy bar, give me a candy bar. Mommy, I want a candy bar. And I'm thinking, oh my God, that's my head. <laughs> I've been walking along, minding my own business, and all of a sudden my head will go, you know what? Let's get a beer. And they'll say, no, you don't want a beer. In a little while, we'll go to a meeting. And my wife goes, I don't want to go to a meeting! I want a beer! No, honey, let's call our sponsor. It's no wonder I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. No one can see my two-year-old, right? You know what she did? 
she gave the kid a candy bar. You bet your ass she did, right? Because that's what you do when you don't have a solution to the tantrum. I got a kid. He's a couple years old. He has tantrums. I used to go to my sponsor. I used to say, you know, I think Parker's an alcoholic. <laughs> he said, why? He's three. What makes you say that? Well, he's got all of the signs. And he would remind me, he would say, your three-year-old son does not act like an alcoholic. Your alcoholic friends act like three-year-olds. <laughs> I just, I haven't identified the behavior yet, right? He would have a tantrum, and we would get one of those videos and put it in the video player, right? The, the, the Barney, right? And it's like kitty crack. If you ever see a kid on those things, he's like, ah! you put in the tape, and, and he's good. He's good. And and I don't mean to relate AA to Barney, right? But if I if I'm going a little nutty. If I'm going a little nutty, if you're new and you're going a little nutty, if you'll get to a meeting, if you'll call your sponsor, if you'll most importantly work with somebody new, if you'll do some of the activity in Alcoholics Anonymous, you, the two-year-old inside you, my experience is, the tantrum may not completely go away, but at least the behavior will may subside enough to allow you to survive another day if you have active, everyday activity and action in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So with that, I'm going to leave you with this thought. I love you.